y'all please pray with me? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, now here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a child, I often played books on tape in my bedroom to fall asleep at night. I had a small number of them that I listened to on rotation, and among them were the first three Anne of Green Gables books. I listened to them so frequently that I was basically a resident of Avonlea, the small Canadian town where Anne lived. I knew all the neighbors, I knew everyone's life story, I was fully absorbed in the world that Lucy Maud Montgomery had constructed for her adolescent imaginative girl in 19th century Canada. And so perhaps as a sign that maybe I should have spent more time with my Bible and less time in Avonlea as a child, when I first read through today's passage to prepare for this sermon, my mind immediately went to Anne's closest neighbor, Mrs. Rachel Lind. Mrs. Lind is the town busybody in Avonlea. She knows everything about everyone. She's not afraid to share her opinions whether or not she really has any idea what she's talking about. And we get this description of her in Anne of Avonlea. She looked upon all who had the misfortune to be born or brought up elsewhere than Prince Edward Island with a decided, can any good thing come out of Nazareth air? Now, as an eight-year-old, I didn't really know what can any good thing come out of Nazareth mean or where or what Nazareth was. I assumed it was just some Canadian phrase that people used, but I certainly got the gist of what she was saying. And the thing about Mrs. Lind is that she just didn't trust things outside of her experience. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than in her relationship with Anne, who is an orphan from Nova Scotia, not from Prince Edward Island. She was adopted when she was about 12 by the Cuthberts, who are two unmarried siblings. When Mrs. Lind hears about this, she immediately goes to the Cuthberts to tell them all the things that are going to go wrong with an orphan from Nova Scotia, 
including a story she's heard about one who poisoned their adoptive family. The thing is she has some knowledge of outsiders. She's heard these stories, but she has no personal experience. Anne, however, is incredibly charming, if a little bit of a mess, and she eventually wins Mrs. Lynde over with her sweetness and her charm. In fact, many years later, um, it's Mrs. Lynde who gives up her own comfort so that Anne can go to college by moving, Mrs. Lynde moves out of her home and in with the Cuthberts to help them, enabling Anne to leave again. She learned that, in fact, something good can come out of Nazareth, but it didn't happen until she could pair what she knew with a personal encounter. So I think Mrs. Lynde can be instructive for us as we look at our passage in John. This particular vignette comes at the end of a series of stories about initial encounters between Jesus and people who would become his followers. In these stories, we meet John the Baptist, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and then finally Nathaniel. And word of Jesus spreads as one person invites the next to come and see. So our scene opens with Philip, friend of Andrew and Peter, who meets Jesus and immediately answers his invitation to follow him. Philip then finds Nathaniel and excitedly says to him, we've found the guy they're talking about in the law and the prophets. It's that Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel utters his famous response, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's so dismissive, you can hear the scoff in his voice. Nazareth, how could you possibly expect me to believe that the person we've been waiting for is from Nazareth. We don't know a whole lot about Nathaniel. This is his one and only appearance in scriptures. This is his big moment. But we can make some assumptions about him based on what we read in the story. So for starters, he's probably from Galilee, same region as Jesus, just like most everyone else we encounter in this part of John. So when he dismisses Nazareth, he knows where Nazareth is. He knows it's just this teeny tiny village probably only a couple hundred people or so. Nathaniel also appears steeped in Jewish tradition, so we can assume that when Philip says him about whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Nathaniel's intimately familiar with the messianic prophecies that Philip is referring to. We can also assume that Nathaniel is not ignorant of the many people, both in his lifetime and leading up to his lifetime, who have already tried to step up and fulfill those prophecies and claim them for themselves. So I think Nathaniel's question isn't so much a contemptuous one as probably just a weary one. What he's saying to Philip is, I get the promise you're making me, but why should I get my hopes up for this particular guy? What makes this Jesus special or any different from the other men before him making the same claim? Can the one thing that I really hope and long for come from Nazareth? And I love Philip's answer. He understands Nathaniel's skepticism and weariness. He doesn't try to reason with him or prove anything to him. He simply invites him. Come and see. Come on, meet the guy for yourself. See what you think. Before Nathaniel can even greet Jesus, Jesus tells him something about himself. He calls him a man in whom there is no deceit. Despite the fact that they've never met, Jesus knows Nathaniel. He knows that Nathaniel is going to call things like he sees them, and he praises him for it. Which, of course, makes Nathaniel wonder, how on earth do you know anything about me? And Jesus tells him, 
I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under that fig tree. We don't know when Jesus saw him, when he was there. But that's really not the point. The point is that Nathaniel knows when he was under the fig tree. He knows what Jesus is talking about. And the knowledge triggers a transformation in him. Whatever skepticism he entered this encounter with vanishes. And he makes an astonishing declaration about Jesus. Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. These are not terms that Nathaniel would throw around lightly. Nathaniel's a good, knowledgeable Jew of his day. These terms, son of God, king of Israel, they have specific meaning for him. Son of God recognizes Jesus' deity. And king of Israel specifically speaks to Jesus' identity as a political messiah. These are big, bold claims. Remember when he scoffed earlier at Philip's assertion, just a little bit before in the story, that Jesus was the one written about in scriptures? And now Nathaniel has made a complete reversal. He not only believes what Philip said, he's willing to publicly proclaim it. So what do we learn from Nathaniel? I think we would do well to remember that prior to meeting Jesus, Nathaniel was already a man who knew something of the world around him. He was clearly steeped in his own religious tradition. He has studied. He has put in the work to seek God through knowledge. And so there's an exhortation for us to do the same. We also need to be people of learning, people who seek knowledge of God and the world. Then Nathaniel's knowledge is transformed by an experience with Jesus. It's not replaced, but it's redirected so that Nathaniel, the man without deceit, can see and proclaim the truth. From this encounter between Nathaniel and Jesus, we learn an important lesson for our own lives. Gospel transformation happens when the knowledge of God and the world comes face to face with the living God. And we are compelled outward as proclaimers of and workers for the truth. We say with Nathaniel, Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel. We echo Philip in inviting others to come and see. We enter into the work of God's kingdom. Friends, I don't know if there's ever been a time in my life when we need people who have been transformed for the work of God's kingdom than we do right now. We need people who are called to the kingdom work of truth-telling, of justice-seeking, of peacemaking and hope-sowing and joy-reaping. As I think about what this might look like in our world, I think of Dr. Martin Luther King, who we celebrate this weekend, especially tomorrow. We look at his legacy in our world as a defender of justice and peace. When I learned about Dr. King as a child, what I remember learning about was his work as a leader in the civil rights movement, and particularly his emphasis on nonviolence. And it wasn't until I was much older that I understood that his work was fundamentally rooted in the gospel. I think on the whole, we just fail to appreciate what a profound theological emphasis he had. Um, in fact, uh, Cambridge theology professor Elizabeth Phillips calls him one of the most prominent political theologians in the modern era. He was a giant in theology. 
And his commitment to justice and the equality of all people, his beautiful vision of the beloved community, and his unbelievable capacity to suffer for the cause, they were all an extension of his understanding of God's action in redeeming the world, married with his own personal experience of God at work. He was, of course, an incredibly gifted man. But what made those gifts transformative for our world is the power of the gospel in his life, turning those gifts to the work of God's kingdom in Dr. King's unique call. Dr. King explored these motivations, particularly his capacity to withstand grave harm for the sake of justice, in a 1960 article called Suffering and Faith. And I'm going to share a piece of that with you because I find it so convicting. Dr. King writes, Due to my involvement in the struggle for the freedom of my people, I have known very few quiet days in the last few years. I have been arrested five times and put in Alabama jails. My home has been bombed twice. A day seldom passes that my family and I are not the recipients of threats of death. I have been the victim of a near-fatal stabbing. So in a real sense, I have been battered by the storms of persecution. I must admit that at times, I have felt that I could no longer bear such a heavy burden. I've been tempted to retreat to a more quiet and serene life. But every time such a temptation appeared, something came to strengthen and sustain my determination. I have learned now that the master's burden is light, precisely when we take his yoke upon us. My personal trials have taught me the value of unmerited suffering. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized there were two ways that I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. Recognizing the necessity for suffering, I have tried to make of it a virtue. If only to save myself from bitterness, I have attempted to see my personal ordeals as an opportunity to transform myself and heal the people involved in the tragic situation which now obtains. I have lived these last few years with the conviction that unearned suffering is redemptive. There are some who still find the cross a stumbling block and others consider it foolishness, but I am more convinced than ever before that it is the power of God unto social and individual salvation. So like the Apostle Paul, I can now humbly yet proudly say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The suffering and agonizing moments through which I have passed over the last few years have also drawn me closer to God. More than ever before, I am convinced of the reality of a personal God. A couple of things strike me as I read Dr. King's words. First, this is a man who has steeped himself in scripture and in the Christian tradition. It echo, its echoes are found all throughout his words. He has sought to know God and thus put himself in a position to experience God. Second, the reality of God and the salvation and fellow suffering of Jesus is intensely personal for Dr. King. He has known our Savior, and he has experienced Jesus. 
None of that led him to a quiet life of contemplation and reflection. He did not savor those experiences, dwell peacefully upon them for the rest of his days. No, they strengthened his resolve and clarified his call. The more he knew God, the more he experienced Jesus, the more Dr. King was charged for the work of God's kingdom. You and I, we are not Dr. King. We do not have his same gifts. We are not called to the same work in the same way that he was. But I dare say that we are, each of us, called by the gospel to the work of God's kingdom in a way that is unique to us and our own gifts. I think of my friend Marie, who's a physical therapist. I don't know that I've ever met someone more passionate about the work that they do. She is gifted by God to heal people's bodies, and she approaches her work and her patients with care and with love. If you have ever heard her talk about treating women after mastectomies or trans men after top surgery and how they deserve to have a full range of motion to match the full lives they're going to lead, you would know that treating people's bodies for her is not just a job. It's a ministry of restoration and wholeness. It is kingdom work, and she goes to work with energy and passion because she can see it as such, and, it allow, and she allows God to equip and refresh her for it. Pastor Bill reminded us last week that the work of Epiphany is still happening. Friends, we are called into that work, to the work of God's kingdom, to the work of love and justice and freedom and hope and peace. None of our two calls will be the same. And I pray but will not promise that none of our calls require the price that Dr. King's did. We can prepare ourselves for our calls by allowing ourselves to be transformed by the gospel seeking to know God more deeply, and allowing ourselves to be sought and found by the God who made us, who calls us, who sustains us, and who loves us. Amen.